Hello, and welcome to the Carl Road Baptist Church podcast. Be sure to listen all the way through to the end of the episode for additional info on where to find more resources for past sermons, as well as how to watch us live each Sunday if you can't join us in person at our Columbus, Ohio location. Let's prepare to hear this week's sermon and listen for what God is saying to you and what he wants to do in your life. So you may already have your Bible open to uh, Mark chapter 9. In the last couple of weeks, Josh has been talking you through the end of Mark 8, where relatively early on in this story, Jesus is already beginning to very confusedly to us perhaps talk about how as Israel's Messiah, even because he's Israel's Messiah, he's going to have to suffer and die and be resurrected. And of course, uh, all of this is strange talk to them. They haven't, actually, they haven't gotten to the end of the book yet. And perhaps if you haven't read to the end of the book, some of this might be confusing to you as well. And, and if we can make any kind of sense of the idea that the person who's coming from God, who is supposed to save his people from suffering, has to suffer and die. Jesus at the end of Mark 8 says, well, actually, now that we're talking about this, anyone who wants to walk behind me and go where I'm going, they're also going to have to suffer and die. And lest, lest it sound like he's merely preparing for defeat for himself and for all of his followers, like he's just taking on a defeatist attitude, he references how he'll later come in the glory of his father with the holy angels and says, truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. So just recapping a little bit, because that then might not be unrelated to the fact that immediately after this story, immediately after Jesus talks about all of this, Mark's, Mark tells us that Jesus took three of his, his closest apprentices, his, th- his three disciples, and uh, uh, on a hike, and we pick up in verse two, it says, six days later, Jesus took Peter and James and John with him and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. Now, I know we haven't even made it a full verse yet, but there are just a couple of things that I want to make sure that we don't miss even in this. First, perhaps you've noticed this, spending some time in the gospel of Mark, but Mark basically reads all of the time like he's out of breath. It's fast paced. Mark's favorite word seems to be this Greek word, euthus, immediately. Everything happens immediately in rapid succession. Mark doesn't necessarily write with uh, perfect efficiency, but we should understand that he doesn't tend to waste words. Mark frequently sacrifices detail in order to show us that the story of Jesus is just kind of flowing together with a kind of urgency. And especially, Mark doesn't tend to bother with numbers unless they're really important. And so it's interesting, I promise it's interesting, uh, that Mark doesn't just say, and Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain. This might be how Mark usually would tell a story, but he says specifically six days later this happens. So what's significant about six days? Hebrew literature loves this kind of thing of of making connections within itself to signal something. And there are a ton of sixes in scripture because it's always in some way pointing 
toward seven, which is uh, a holy number, a complete number. It's, al it's always suggesting in some way something related to Sabbath and completion. But a couple of sixth days might stand out in particular to a Jewish audience. One is the sixth day of creation in Genesis 1, the creation of humans. And, and we'll see a little bit later uh, how, how this voice from heaven uh, speaks God's pleasure over the scene. Kind of like God saying over the creation of humans, it is very good. But even more front and center, as we have this story of Jesus going up a mountain with some apprentices, is a scene from the Exodus. Uh, in, the, in the book of Exodus. And so if you keep a finger in the gospel of Mark and flip just for a moment way back to Exodus chapter 24, verse 12. Exodus chapter 24, verse 12. We have Israel having recently fled from oppression in Egypt and now out in the wilderness under Moses' leadership. And chapter 24, verse 12 begins, The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on a high mountain and wait there, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses set out, set out with his assistant, Joshua. And it's always kind of interesting to remember that Joshua and Jesus are, are actually the same name. They're just, they're just transliterated differently. And Moses went up the uh, and Moses went up the mountain, uh, skipping to verse fifteen. And then Moses went up the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the cloud. So here in this vitally important story that Peter, James, and John would know very well. We have God calling Moses up a mountain. And after six days, God is supposed to give Moses written instructions for how this recently liberated people group is going to live in, in order to continue enjoying the favor of God, the God of creation, the God who liberated them, so that, so that it might be like God himself is their king. And, and God does indeed do that in Exodus 24, and 25 and, and so on eventually. But if we read a couple of verses later there in Exodus, what God does first is instruct Moses to invite all the people to make an offering so that they can construct a dwelling place, a sanctuary for God, so that the God who's up to this point been, been mostly known uh, through great works of power acting against Egypt and and through a pillar of, of cloud and fire and through a, a quaking a holy mountain and burning flame, that that God would live among the people. And this is the God whose glory, we would say, was so great that Moses, after spending 40 days in God's presence, Exodus says, would, would have to wear a veil over his face because it was glowing so much that it was freaking people out. So, I want to entertain the possibility that in all of this, all of this is in the minds of James and John and Peter when they go up the mountain with Jesus, like Joshua went up the mountain with Moses. And, and, and all of this happens like echoes of perhaps one, at least one of the greatest moments 
of God's self-revelation in their history, in the history of the world. So coming back to verse 2, and he, Jesus, was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, such that no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking to Jesus. And I don't want any of this to sound like just one of those things that happens to Jesus. We can have this over-familiarity with a lot of these Bible stories. Like this is just a Tuesday for Jesus. Peter, James, and John have seen Jesus do and say a lot of crazy things up to this point. But now their friend and their teacher that they've known, as they've known him, is now glowing like an apocalyptic figure and having a face-to-face with two of Israel's greatest prophets who are who are both dead, by the way. One who represents God's law and one who represents God's spirit of power. And so, of course, Peter is going to try to make sense of this. Verse 5 says, Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Which is not to say that Peter was just word vomiting the first thought that, or random thought that came into his head. If, if you were suddenly to have Elijah and Moses and the Messiah on the mountain together, uh, somehow glowing with the glory of God the way that Moses' face did, only his entire body, almost like from within himself, and your mind goes to when God gave Moses not only a law for the people, but instructions on how to make a dwelling place so that God might be among them. And all of that kept Moses on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. You might imagine that this conference is going to take some time. That there is something huge and historic and monumental in the history of Israel, in the history of the world that is going to happen in this place. And we should prepare that this is going to take some time to play out. So maybe we should set up some dwelling places. And Peter's not entirely wrong. Because just like on the mountain with Moses, the cloud of God's presence descends on them and something is about to happen. Israel is about to get its next great revelation. Verse 7. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice, This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly they looked around, and they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. And I do not imagine that was what Peter was expecting. There's so, so much to be said about this passage, but... I love that feeling of absolute silence when Mark picks up in the next verse. And they were coming down the mountain and he ordered them not to tell anyone about what they had seen until the son of man had risen from the dead. And I just picture that from that moment on the mountain to that warning from Jesus, no one spoke a word that everyone was just held in an absolute, stunned silence, even Peter. And as the cloud dissipated, 
and the whole walk down the mountain, I imagine those words echoing in their mind the entirety of that revelation to which all of this buildup was pointing. Listen to him. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. They didn't get a new commandment or new instructions for a return to God's dwelling place. Just listen to him. And I imagine that because I imagine Peter or James or John then thinking, turning over in their minds, what does that mean? They were, of course, always asking that question. What does that mean? Haven't we been, haven't we been listening to him? I mean, of course, listen to him. Are, are we not listening to him? Should, should we be listening to something that we haven't been listening to? What does that mean? Why would that be what God has to say? So when Jesus tells them to keep this scene to themselves until Jesus is raised from the dead, even though we just looked at, Jesus, Jesus has already taught them, just taught them about needing to be raised from the dead just before they went up the mountain. Now they start asking questions. It says really trying to understand what he's saying. And then they start asking some theological questions about scripture and prophecy. And they're trying to wrap their minds around what Jesus is saying. They're trying to listen to him. Okay, so as they're coming down the mountain, now they meet back up with these other apprentices, the other disciples. And the scene is in sharp contrast to the stunned silence that, that they may have had as they were going down the mountain just a bit ago. This scene is, is one of frantic commotion. So as we've already read, Jesus and his companions come into a scene of argument because a man brought his son to Jesus' other disciples to be healed. And the man says in verse 17, teacher, I brought you my son. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. And whenever it seizes him, it dashes him, to the, it dashes him down and he foams at the mouth and he grinds his teeth and he becomes rigid. And I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they could not do so. And Jesus invites him to bring the boy to him. And, and verse 20 continues. When the spirit saw him, it immediately threw the boy into convulsions and he fell on the ground and he rolled about foaming at the mouth. Remember how Mark is kind of sparse on details and he's repeating some of these things. He's foaming, foaming, thrashing about. He's creating this scene for us. And Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? He said, from childhood, it has often cast him into the fire and thrown him into the water to destroy him. But if you are able to do anything, have pity on us and help us. Jesus says, if you are able, all things can be done for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out, I believe, help me overcome my unbelief. And so I want us to consider two perspectives here. Neither of them are Jesus and neither of them are the boy's father. Instead, we have James, John, and Peter, just being told with all the force and weight of Mount Sinai, listen to him, listen to Jesus. And so we might imagine that they are right now wrapped in attention. They are more focused than ever on their master and teacher. Their friends couldn't do anything to help, but they're going to watch and learn whatever it is that Jesus says and does because, uh, because uh, what, what Jesus says to do, what, what Jesus might 
command in authority over the spirit, that this might be what they, the kind of thing that they need to be listening to. Maybe this is what the voice from heaven meant. Listen to him. And on the other side, I also want us to consider the perspective of the boy who for most of his life has been victimized and held captive, not just by seizures, but by something inside of him trying to destroy him. I want to take a beat and consider that. Something inside of him trying to destroy him. Throwing him into water and into fire. And on top of it, unable to speak. Unable to process his suffering. Unable to name it and cry out with his own voice, whatever his desperation was. That there's this enemy of his human nature dwelling inside of him and unable and him unable to get free from it, from its grip. I mean, have, have you ever felt something like that? Like an enemy to your human nature, to your human flourishing, to, to your well-being, something that oppressed or compelled or, or something was sharing that space inside of you. And this can kind of be like what Paul describes in Romans when he talks about doing what he does not want to do and being unable to do what he wants to do. Maybe it's like the weight of depression sitting on our chest, not letting us move. Or, or the way our habitual anger or defensiveness might boil up and on its own and just kind of cause us to just leap forward in, in this reactivity that we don't want. Or, or this insatiable addiction to, to news feeds or the constant chirping of a voice in our heads that reminds us of how worthless we are or, or how much we haven't yet achieved. We might not know what it's like to be thrashed about by a, by a spirit that throws us into the water or into a fire, but I bet we know what it's like to have something in us that seems to be the enemy to what we truly desire and what God truly desires for us and trying, it seems, to destroy us. And I bet we know what it's like to want to be delivered. But with Jesus' apprentices watching and listening for what Jesus will do to deliver the boy from these seizures, what Jesus doesn't do is what we might expect. He doesn't call out a spirit of convulsions and of foaming at the mouth and of self-destruction. Instead, he names something that even the, even the boy's own father didn't name about what's ultimately going on, what's ultimately afflicting this boy. Remember, the, his father says that what, was keep, uh, what the spirit was, was a spirit that kept the boy from speaking. But in verse 25, Jesus says, you spirit that keep the boy from speaking and hearing, come out of him and never enter him again. Did you catch that? Jesus, regardless of whether the boy was actually deaf, is calling out something that no one else has identified up to this point in this desperate need for deliverance. There's, there's some reality in which the most fundamental issue that this person needs that's keeping them from deliverance, it, it, it's not the thrashing about, it's not the attempts to destroy him. It, it's as though those are symptoms. It's that it's kept him from hearing. Among everything else that this spirit was doing to terrorize this person 
And, and among all the things that we, we might want to triage in this situation, Jesus seems to point out and prioritize that more than anything else, what this spirit is doing to hold this boy captive is to keep him from being able to listen to something. And when the mountain revelation just a scene ago culminated into this idea of listen to God's beloved son, we have to imagine that this has everything to do with the need for this boy, his need for deliverance, to simply hear Jesus. Hear the beloved of God. Hear the voice and the embodiment of God's love which stands alone on the mountain and has all that we need to listen to. It's as though the voice from heaven says, this is my son, the beloved, listen to him. And Jesus says, but down over here is someone who can't hear me and I will not let that stand. Because until they can hear my voice and, and my voice can enter them, they'll be terrorized. Jesus wasn't interested in addressing symptoms or of merely negating the suffering, but of getting underneath it to what this person was cut, to where this person was cut off from the living God, the inability to hear his voice, the voice of God's beloved, the voice of love. Because as John 17 says, this is life, to know God and Christ, to know their love. And so when Jesus drives out the inability to hear, everything quiets down. The convulsions stop. And we have that deafening silence again, that stunned silence. And Mark 9.26 says, it, it was as though the boy was dead. And I think Mark's tying this quite explicitly into Jesus having just talked about, and, and as was read, we'll just talk about again the necessity of Jesus' suffering and death and, and the necessity of the disciples to experience the same. Because then it says, Jesus takes him by the hand and lifts him up as though raising him from the dead into new life. Because now... He heard, he can hear, he can listen. Friends, there are things in us that cannot, that will not let us hear the voice of God. There are spirits of the world and, and there are parts of us that dictate versions of reality to us that say who we are and who God is. And they tell us that God is disappointed in us and that we should be ashamed to pray. That we're not safe around people and so we can't trust when they say that they love us or, or trust when people say that Jesus loves us. That if we slow down and rest as God invites us to rest in scripture, that everything will fall apart. Perhaps they drown out the voice of God with a constant noise and content of content and activity. Or perhaps that they scream alarms that sound off from trauma and past hurts and deep wounds. Or they speak to us through a voice that tries to speak for God and imagines how God would speak to us because of how someone taught us once that God is. Friends, there are things that keep us from actually being able to hear truly and deeply 
hear the voice of God. And more than anything else as a spiritual director, I find that what cripples us and keeps us from the fullness of life and in the love of God with Christ, from the fullness of discipleship and transformation into the likeness of Christ, isn't that we fail to attend to the content of Jesus' words or that we haven't been reading scripture or that we haven't been trying hard enough to listen. It's that there are things in us that prevent us from hearing, from truly hearing God relate to us as God really is. And what I believe that God counsels us in the transfiguration, surrounded by and inseparable from Jesus talking about his suffering and his death and his resurrection, what the transfiguration counsels us is that among all the ways that God has spoken to God's people through the law and through the prophets, through instruction and through power, one revelation of who God is toward us stands alone. Jesus. One revelation of who God is stands alone. And that is Jesus. And God urges us, listen to him. Listen and hear who he is. Not just his words, but his voice and even more his very self as the very word of God spoken into human form, as the very love of God embodied, the love of God for us. Take him into your ears and into your soul. Listen to him. And, the, and there are these things in us that get in the way of receiving the love of God and we cannot deliver, that, uh, us, we cannot deliver ourselves from them. And what's needed, if the deliverance in Mark 9 has anything to say to us, what's needed is that we need Jesus to speak to what keeps us from hearing his voice. So that the love of God can reach those parts in us that thrash about and throw us to the ground and hold us in place so that we can be delivered. And it's like this, often as a spiritual director, I'll, I'll look with people at how God seems to the person. It's a question I ask a lot when I meet with people. How does God seem to you? And it may be that God will seem distant and aloof. And, and they might know intellectually that that doesn't, that doesn't sound right. That's probably not right. But it's what their heart perceives. It's genuinely how God seems to them. And we'll find in that space of that feeling distant from God, that there's something in them, there's some part of them that's accusing them, for example. And so I'll ask, how is God responding toward, or, or how is God being present to that accusing voice that you're noticing? And that's when they'll notice, well, God isn't being accusing. Because when I notice how God is being toward that accusing voice, I think God seems gentle and firm and maybe authoritative. Seems more like the Jesus that I know in scripture. And maybe without a word from God, just experiencing God, hearing how God is toward that thing that's getting in the way. 
that sense of distance begins to unravel and they're allowed to hear again. And, and this network of anxiety and fear and compulsive self-soothing that exists in so many of us that begins to untangle over time. As we continue to invite the love of God into the places that just have not been able or allowed to hear who Jesus actually is, who God actually is, and experience the love that God is. So my invitation to you before I pray for us this morning is first to notice. We have to begin with awareness. First, just notice where, there, where might you need to hear the voice of God's love Maybe in some wounds or in some habits or in some longings, where in you might there be something inside of you that needs to hear God's actual genuine love for you? And, and this morning, can you just invite the God who knows your need of deliverance more than even you do? Can you just invite that God and invite Jesus through the Holy Spirit to just respond toward whatever might be preventing the free flow of God's love into your deepest parts. Thank you for tuning in to the Carl Road Baptist Church podcast. We hope you found something that can be applied to your life today and into the future. You can always watch our past services or see them live on YouTube, Facebook, and our website at www.carlroadbaptist.org. That's Carl with a K-A-R-L, roadbaptist.org. If you search YouTube or Facebook, look for Carl Road Baptist Church. And don't forget to subscribe or follow us if you are watching via a service that allows that so you can stay up to date and notified when another episode is ready for you to watch or listen to. Thanks again for sharing your time with us and putting in the effort to maintain your relationship with God. Have a fantastic week, and we look forward to growing alongside you in the future with the next episode of the KRBC Podcast.